This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to a bonus mini edition of Oh God, What Now? with me, Andrew Harrison. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock appeared before the COVID inquiry this week in what was widely agreed to be a fairly disastrous and self-serving performance. One of the key figures in the debacle has so far killed 230,000 people in this country. Hancock had already been accused of nuclear levels of self-confidence during the crisis. He reinforced that impression this week by telling the committee that he did everything right and on time and that everything that went wrong was somebody else's fault, usually that of Dominic Cummings. Alexandreo has been summing up the inquiry for Best for Britain and for The Bunker. There'll be a new special edition of The Bunker out soon. But we thought that Hancock's testimony deserved an addition all of its own. So Alex joins me now. Hi, Alex. Hi, Andrew. So you've been on COVID watch for weeks now. Hancock is the biggest name so far in this second phase, which is all about key decision makers and leadership. Boris Johnson's on next week. What is your overall take on Hancock's performance on his, t- his two days this week? So he was a precise opposite of what a minister giving evidence to this sort of inquiry should be which is open, collaborative, humble about mistakes made. Because the whole point of this inquiry is to do things better in the future. In his defense, and that is the last time you hear those words (laughs) pass my lips today, he was set up to fail in exactly that way. Because of the way the, the inquiry is structured, basically experts civil servants get a go first, then come the politicians, the decision makers. And because there had been such a consensus of the view that he's basically an incompetent liar Mm -hmm. in the weeks that went by, his appearance was always going to be a very defensive they're trying to pin all of this on me and it wasn't all my fault. Yes. One. Which is probably true. Yes. Right? It wasn't all his fault. It wasn't all his fault. But quite a lot of, <laughs> a lot it, of was. it was his fault. Yes. I mean, he did look like a, to me like a kind of squirming middle manager who was kind of very clearly out of his depth trying to claim he was on top of things and just trying to sweat his way through it. Which was precisely the description he earned from his colleagues in their testimony of what he was like at the time. Yeah. A middle manager out of his depth trying to pretend he had answers, which actually when you need answers and quickly – can be a, an absolute fucking disaster to have someone saying, oh, yeah, 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 there is a plan. And then when it's like, you know, it's like being lost in the woods with someone that 
pretends they have a compass and can make a fire, mm-hmm. and then evening comes and you go, go on then, Matt, and he goes. Ah, ah, no, what I meant was I've seen a YouTube video <laughs> once of how to make a fire, but I will need some flint. And some matches, and some wood. So uh, let's get into that, the evidence. In his evidence, Dominic Cummings said Hancock had lied his way through the pandemic and killed people. Hugo Keith, the lead counsel, reiterated that not only Cummings, but also Sir Patrick Valance and Helen McNamara had all said he'd lied, got overexcited and just said stuff, made unevidenced claims. Hancock himself insisted there was no evidence of this, but there was a toxic culture looking for people to blame. I drove the system hard, is what he said. I mean, at that core question, Hugo Keith, I, I believe, actually said it's not possible to determine whether he's a liar or not. On the balance of what you've seen, was he a liar? Yes. Mm. And he was kind of doing it even at the inquiry, like visibly. He was doing the same bullshitting that he had been accused of. And that's actually the the basic problem with his narrative is that he was the wise one that could see it all coming and try to wake everyone up to the disaster that was coming, but no one else saw it. And that's why they're now pointing the finger of blame at him. But the point is that narrative is not credible when he's then asked something about the SAGE meetings, and it turns out he wasn't reading the SAGE meetings at the time, and the nerve tag minutes, and actually he wasn't reading those either. And he was asked about this memo and that memo that were addressed to him, and he kept saying, I don't think I saw that. So you can't be the really sharp guy that's got his finger on the pulse of the detail of your brief, warning everyone else, and then go, oh, I'm clueless. And also the guy who wants ultimate responsibility for who lives or dies if the NHS should fall over was one of the things that emerged earlier in the inquiry. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing here, but he wanted, I want to be the one who gives the thumbs up and the thumbs down. Yeah, I mean, his his defence is that he was just spitballing, as it were. He was just challenging the concern census at that point. And it was, you know, the thing is, I think there is something to his central, basically, story, which is that everyone was so fatalistic and negative that there was a risk we would just go catatonic and go, oh, geez, everyone will die and do nothing about it. And so he felt he needed to be the sort of Mr. Motivator that got everyone G'd up and that 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 involved a little bit of maybe overexcitedness and optimism. And I get that. If you put me or if you put you in a situation where you're in a meeting with nine people, all of whom are like, oh, God, this is awful, you will naturally assume the role of the person that's saying, come on, guys, we can beat this. You know, there is some truth to that. But the problem is, at the moment you went under the surface of of that detail, he uh, sent a message saying, we have a plan. Mm. It's uh, regularly refreshed and reviewed and it's ready to go. We have a pandemic plan. And he was asked in the inquiry, what did you base that view on? And his answer was that the International Health Index and the World Health Organization had the UK at number two in the world for pandemic preparedness. So he hadn't made any inquiries in his department. This is not a fact that he had verified. He had just looked at a think tank that said, oh, uh, the UK is really good at this sort of thing and transmitted that information 
adding to it, embellishing it yeah. by saying, oh, we regularly review and refresh it, when he had no personal knowledge of this happening. So he basically just went on Trustpilot and went, yeah. Yeah, basically. Stars. That's basically. So my- he, gave her, he gave them the Yelp <laughs> review <laughs> of our pandemic plan <laughs> as if it were somehow the canon. What great country would catch COVID there again? My favourite part of it was that... Um, <laughs> Cummings actually tweeted during Hancock's evidence to say that he was lying about putting a shield program in for care homes. Cummings says the paper trail shows that there wasn't one. The cabinet office was blocking the idea and he, Cummings, was the one who overruled them. Now, at this point, we're into he said, she said. What I want to ask you is, we're going to get further into Hancock's evidence Mm, now, but mm. has anything substantive and new come out of what he said? Yes. I mean, if you consider witness testimony as evidence, then yes, Mm. he has said things that are contrary to this. If you are talking about anything that is backed up by contemporaneous evidence, there's very little. Like he claims he called Boris Johnson on the 13th of March 2020 and said, we need a full lockdown now. But there is no log of that call no note of that call. No one else remembers that call. He sends an email to Johnson that same evening and doesn't mention that call. Mm. And none of the evidence further on, like the minutes of the meeting the next day, refer to anything like that happening. So he's part of that, what's become a bit of an idiotic bidding war to say, I said first, we should have a full lockdown, which other people have actually engaged in. Yeah, well, he's now, he claimed in his evidence this week that he now says the first lockdown should have started on the 2nd of March. Yes, three weeks. Gover's admitted this too. Is this the closest we're going to get to the government or what was then the government admitting that they actually did get it wrong? Well, Gove did actually admit mm. that he, that they did get it wrong and that people died and he apologised. And that is a fundamental contrast between the two, I think, both in terms of witness styles, but also in terms of how smart a politician are they, you know, how capable. Gove is old school, right? Gove would not be out of place in the party of Thatcher. He would have a more minor role, but he's of that ilk. Yeah. Matt Hancock is an overpromoted toady that should never have been near any kind of lever of any kind of power, and that much is obvious. So, you know, like a casting director used to say to actors during rehearsal, one of the cruelest things I've ever heard, she would go up to them and say, darling, it's my fault. I should never have cast you for this. It's too difficult. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the fundamental problem here, you know, that someone of his limited ability should never have been in that position. And that, I think, is the theme that does not go away whichever one you believe, right? Because if you believe the Cummings side, as it were, that he was an idiot and incompetent and a liar, and they barred him from talking directly to the prime minister and all of that stuff, then the question becomes, why was he still in position a year and a half later when basically he quit because he was caught having an affair, nothing to do with his brief, right? He managed to sack himself. Yes. So if you knew this dangerous idiot was heading the health department, why was he still in position through that entire crisis? And then it becomes actually 
their fault, not yeah. his fault. Yes, you don't put Smithers in charge of the Springfield nuclear yeah. power plant, do yeah. you? Yeah. Um, so one of the more astounding revelations, and a lot of them, or claims rather, is that the health secretary, Matt Hancock, didn't know about the then-Chancellor Rishi Sunak's eat-out-to-help-out plan until it was announced. He found out on the news like the rest of us did. Let's hear a clip about that. The I didn't know about the eat-out-to-help-out scheme until the um, the cabinet meeting on the morning of its... Uh, announcement. And um, it was one of a package of loosenings. Um, We were doing a number of things to uh, bring back uh, a bit of freedom over the summer. As the Secretary of State for Health, had you been told and had you been asked for your view, what would you have said? Um, I don't know. So, Alex, what does this tell us about what we used to call in the misty distant past joined up government? Um, some really bad things. And I, as in the wrap up we did of the previous um, stuff with Christina Pargel, I think this eat out to help out stuff will become the lightning rod for the biggest things going forward politically, as it were, because that was Rishi Sunak's mm-hmm. baby. And he's now prime minister and he's giving evidence at some point in the next couple of weeks. And so I think that will become a big, big thing. So, I mean, A, it's extraordinary that the health secretary does not know about a scheme that ordinary logic tells you has a good chance of increasing transmission, right? He found out about it the same day we found out about it. I find that both credible and incredible, right? Mm -hmm. What I mean is you can completely believe that that was going on in Johnson's fiasco, clown car of a government. And it's also something that should never have happened. The further thing you have, so there is an exchange between Matt Hancock and Simon Case, who is the head of the civil service, the top civil servant at number 10 Downing Street, in which Matt Hancock on the 24th of August uh, says to him, just want to let you know directly that we have had lots of feedback that eat out to help out is causing problems in our intervention areas. I've kept it out of the news, but it's serious. Simon Case responds, have you told Rishi? I don't think he can afford to extend it anyway. And Matt Hacker comes back with, yes, we've told Treasury, we've been protecting them in the comms, and thankfully it hasn't bubbled up. So even when he knew about the scheme Mm. and he knew there were problems, and the council challenged him about this, and his response was that I'm a team player, okay? I want listeners to absorb this thing fully. The person in charge of the health of the nation, the person in charge of securing our good health during a public health crisis, during a pandemic, Mm. knew that a scheme which was still running at that point, still had a week to run at that point, was causing infections which would translate to deaths and kept it out of the news, not only didn't intervene to stop it, not only didn't, you know, warn against it, but kept it out of the news instead of warning people. So the government was actively encouraging us to crowd into pubs and restaurants, knowing that this was going to be a health problem. And you take that and juxtapose it with their rhetoric now, 
about how they're going to treat people with disability as people who are basically work shy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they caused a lot of this long COVID disability because a big rump of the people who are, have dropped out of the uh, employment labor market at the moment are because of long COVID. And I think it becomes almost, we're sort of in the, in the corporate manslaughter general yeah. area at this point. Yeah. Just on the idea that the Treasury could kind of pull a policy out of its ear in a, in a cabinet meeting, is it normal for branches of government to effectively kind of freelance with their own policy ideas, kind of ring out with a flourish in front of the prime minister, look what we're doing? Yeah, maybe as a general rule, it's not. But for Treasury, it's not unheard of, right? They do do stuff like this. But they wouldn't and couldn't have done this without Johnson's OK, mm -hmm. right? So that's the key again. You know, we are concentrating on this battle of the smaller personalities, but the point is that the structure is meant so that the person at the top acts as referee, disseminates the information that needs to be disseminated to the right department through his number 10 machine, says no to this person and yes to that person, and makes the decisions, yeah. right? And carries the can. And carries the can. So what happened here is that that person, not only was he indecisive, not only was he disinterested, not only was he always leaning towards the side of opening up the economy mm. and personal liberty and all that kind of stuff, which is frankly bollocks in the middle of a pandemic, by the way, you know, and he likes to see himself as Churchillian. Mm. But what he's saying now is that he wouldn't have imposed blackouts during the blitz. Mm. Because if people want to sit there and read a book with their lights on, then it's their block, it's decision. okay for their block to be bombed. Yeah. So that person was not only indecisive, but he was actively making contrasting decisions to different people. Mm. So he was saying okay to one person about this yeah. thing and okay to the other person about the complete opposite thing. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be the world king, he's, you have to rule decisively. Yeah, you? you have to be king. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We talked about the rancor within number 10. That was palpable from Hancock's evidence. He mm. talked about a toxic number 10 full of deep unpleasantness. Wonder who he's talking about. Let's have a listen to something that refers to that. I can now I can see how, you know, my sense of needing to keep the driving the system forward um, might have had this impact on some people um, who, especially those who were more sceptical of the need of the government to act, frankly. Um, we have seen some of the evidence that the same people who are accusing me of overconfidence uh, at the same time, we're trying, we're blocking the action that I was saying was, we needed. 
So in his defence, I was just working everyone too hard because I alone understood the seriousness of the situation. Again, I mean, this is this is his deposition rather than hard evidence. But does what we know bear that out? In some cases it does, but mostly it doesn't. Nor does his own evidence, to be honest. Because like mm-hmm. I said, you can't be the person that's working the hardest and driving everything forward and then go, oh, I didn't start reading nerve tag minutes until the end of March. <laughs> You know, because in those minutes was the thing about asymptomatic transmission, right? So you needed to know those minutes inside and out in order to make the right decisions. And what a lot of people have said, and bear with me for a moment, it's a a superficially smart position, but I think it's actually very misconceived. A lot of commentators have come out and said the inquiry has lost its way. It's concentrating on the soap opera and the personalities saying, you know, that fucking person, this fucking idiot and that, you know, and missing the purpose of the inquiry, which is to come up with recommendations to make things better in the future. But I would push quite robustly against that because the theme that's emerged very, very clearly is that idiotic, poorly skilled, dysfunctional big egos ended up in positions of power and their interplay fucked the country, Mm -hmm. right? That's the theme. And I think the role of the inquiry is to find ways of the system compensating for the next time something happens and an idiot is in power. Unless you can tell me that this will never happen again. The trend is the opposite at the moment, Mm. right? The trend is towards politics getting stupider and more populist rather than better. So that is the role of the inquiry, to understand the depth of the idiocy and dysfunction Mm. in government, come up with ways that the system can wrap around an individual like Matt Hancock and go, they're their minister, have some hot chocolate in this room and let us do our job. Well, the commentators that you talk about are all in a particular kind of newspaper, and it does seem to be that the reason they are saying the inquiry has lost its way is because the inquiry is leading towards Boris Johnson, mm. the man who set the tone, the man who claimed he made decisions but didn't. The, I mean, you know, when Hancock says, those who are more sceptical of the need for government to act, uh, blah, 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 uh, the same people who are accusing me of overconfidence were the same trying to block the action I was taking. I mean, who's being subtweeted there? I mean, exactly. So their thesis would be, this is irrelevant because it's dealing with the past rather than looking forward. Mm. Because Boris Johnson was Boris Johnson and someone new will be in power, you know, when the next problem happens. But actually, not only is it possible that it will be someone like Boris Johnson or worse, like Suella Braveman, let's say, but it's entirely possible it will be Boris Johnson again since he seems to not have given up on the idea of making a comeback, right? So it's highly relevant to find a way of the system coping to take this out of the personal sphere with the Boris Johnsons of the world, with the Matt Hancocks of the world, with the Dominic Cummingses of the world, right? 
That's the point. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Michael Gove appeared in this round of evidence and he did apologise to the victims of the pandemic, saying that the UK was too slow to enter lockdown. I think he was one of the first former cabinet members to say too slow, wasn't he? He's the first to kind of break that mm-hmm. omerta. Absolutely. Let's hear him. And I want to take this opportunity, if I may, my lady, to apologise to uh, the victims uh, who endured um, uh, so much pain, the families who endured so much loss as a result of the mistakes that were made by government in response to the pandemic. And as a minister responsible for the Cabinet Office and who was also close to many of the decisions that were made, I must take my share of responsibility for that. Go is an extremely skillful politician, but it doesn't mean that everything he says is insincere. Do you think that was a sincere apology? No. It was smart. It was the smart thing to do. But if that were a sincere apology, then the rest of his evidence on that day would not have been like trying to wrestle a kneel in a vat of KY jelly, right? Mm. He would have been quite honest and forthcoming with his answers for the rest of the day if he was genuinely contrite and wanting to make things better for the future. So I think the rest of his evidence belies his position at the start. But like I said, his position at the start puts into stark contrast the difference in quality of different politicians, you know, where Gove understands instinctively in his gut as a politician that this is the time for contrition, that what people want to see is someone step up and say, we're all fallible, we're trying to do our best in a very difficult situation, and we may have fucked some things up, we're very sorry. On the flip side, you get Matt Hancock, who seems to think that he is the sort of the protagonist of his own heroic novel in which dark forces were working against him to stop him from doing what? I mean, who was stopping him from reading the fucking minutes of the main scientific committees that were providing him with the information? No one. He was busy cupping buttocks. Yeah. I mean, he does talk about uh, his, you know, his big regret being not pushing back on asymptomatic transmission. Public Health England was adamant, he said, in January 2020 that people without symptoms couldn't pass the virus on. And he felt like a broken record when he objected to them. But it's reasonable to say, well, you are the health secretary. You can say, you, you, I mean, okay, you run the risk of uh, running against the science, but you are capable of overruling something like that. I mean, not only was the information coming up to him really quite explicit about asymptomatic transmission being a thing, and if Public Health England were misinformed on the on the issue, it was actually his responsibility to share that information between the different people. But also, the thing that rarely gets pointed out, 4th of February 2020, Diamond Princess the cruise ship off the coast of Japan, proved conclusively there was asymptomatic transmission because it was the first time they tested everyone, whether they had symptoms or not, and found that there are people without symptoms that were infected and shedding virus. So this notion that this was contested science Mm -hmm. by the end of February, beginning of March, is just absolute blithering nonsense, to be honest. So we've just seen Matt Hancock do the equivalent of one of those whiny apprentice exit interviews where they say, Oh, yes. That's so good. Telling yeah. Sir Alan how yeah, much yeah, I, yeah. I am a top shelf player, Sir yeah, Alan. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, yeah. and if yeah. it's too good for you, then that's your problem, Sir Alan, yeah, is what we've yeah. just seen. Yeah. Next up, Boris Johnson. Next week, is it? 
Next week, yes. I think he's scheduled in for Wednesday and Thursday, two whole days, okay. just him. There are more people to come. We don't know when they will appear. So, I, I mean, the status of Simon Case's health remains yes. unclear. Maybe he will recover just in time to um, to give evidence to the, uh, the inquiry. Maybe he won't. And Rishi Sunak, of mm. course, will also give evidence. So, um, yeah, quite a big one coming up. But we don't have to wait for the final words to come in before a judgment is made. What kind of, what are the, what are your interim findings as the interim judge, Alex, of what we're seeing so far? Not only don't we have to wait, we pretty much know exactly what Johnson's evidence will be, right? Mm -hmm. Because his defence was foreshadowed by Michael Gove. In fact, it was probably given to him by Michael Gove, that makes sense. Michael Gove did a big thing of saying, if you're watching Boris, this is the way to deal with it. And the answer is this, that, you know, his learning style, his leading style is one of wanting a discursive one, of wanting, you know, challenging the consensus and wanting this big idea to play out against this big idea in the room and and see which one has merit, basically. And that's what his defense will be. His interpretation of all the indecision, the dithering, the, the oscillation that he's been accused of will be to say, no, no, that's just me testing the validity of these theories. It's just my style to challenge people, to pretend to be an innocent, to pretend I don't understand this, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. That will be, I absolutely guarantee you, that will be his, uh, his view. How he will respond to the second wave, where those ideas were not contested, they were established, where there were warnings that, you know, transmission was rising through ETA to help out. And while he dithered and refused to lock down um, before the holidays, that I think will be a much, much more difficult one to cope with. Alexandreou, thanks for joining me in the middle of the long slog that is the COVID inquiry. It's absolutely my pleasure. I find this stuff fascinating and I hope people listening do too. If so, we can recommend Alex's edition of The Bunker, where he talks to friend of the podcast, Professor Christina Pargel of Independent Sage, about the first part of Module 2 of the inquiry. There is a link in the show notes. And follow The Bunker on your favourite app, because it will be returning to the COVID inquiry for more summaries in the very near future. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis with socials by Jess Harpin, with art design by Jim Parrott and Mike Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. 